Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, here we are in the year 2020. We're sitting together on a Sunday morning, and we're reading about and thinking about and talking about events which happened about 4,000 years ago. Some pilgrim, some sojourner, some refugee in the Middle East somewhere. Why, why are we doing this? Why are we spending time together this morning considering this, this narrative? Well, you remember I've been emphasizing through these sermons on Genesis that this is our history. This is our family history. Up till Genesis chapter 11, the, the record is pretty universal dealing with the entire world and all the nations, and now it's starting to focus in, a laser focus as God narrows the focus to Abram, later, later on Abraham, and the Jews, the Israelites. And I don't think any of us have a direct descendants from Israel, but it's still our story that we're looking at this morning. It's our history. It's the history of God's people, the history of the church, which God gathers, defends, and preserves from the beginning of the world to the end. That church is being described here in Genesis chapter 12, and that church is the people of God into which we have been engrafted. We're dealing with our family history. This is our father Abraham. Even though we're not Jews and not Israelites, most of us, but it's our father. He's the father of all believers. We've been adopted into the family of God, the covenant family of God. And so it's our story. It's important for us. It's our history. And as we read this, this part of the chapter, it's, it's something very strange and unexpected that we come across. Because Abram was told, you remember, he had to leave Ur of the Chaldees, and then he stopped in Haran for a bit. And then when Terah died, the Lord moved him onwards to this promised land, which he would give to Abram and his descendants. So he has a promise of land, he has a promise of descendants, but he has no land and he has no descendants. It's all promise. And so Abram's moving around this future inheritance of his future descendants, building altars and waiting on the Lord, but he's hardly arrived, and there's already a problem. Verse 10, now there was a famine. And you remember, you may remember that I mentioned that this land was, at that time in history, it's about 2,000 years before the Lord Jesus Christ, it was undergoing a lot of turmoil, a lot of people were migrating away, there had been a lot of catastrophes of different types, and it was, at any time in history, it was a land which depends on rain. And if God didn't give rain then you couldn't eat, you couldn't live. And that's what's happening here. There's a famine in the land. So the land of blessing is not the land of blessing. Because famine means curse. When God closes the heavens and doesn't send rain, and there's no food, that's a sign of God's judgment. Of course, there's Sodom and Gomorrah there. There are all the... The peoples, the Canaanites, the descendants of Canaan, the, these are people under the curse. These are people living, hating one another and being hated and hating God. 
And the Holy Spirit emphasizes the situation because he doesn't just say there was a famine. Look at the end of the verse. The famine was severe, so severe that Abram couldn't stay. He had to leave just to survive. Now, we think of Abram and we think of a guy with a backpack, perhaps, you know, pilgrimaging around the, um, the promised land. But Abram had his wife, of course. He, he had Lot and Lot's family. He also had a lot of dependents. He had a lot of servants. We don't have time to get into it, but the way that servants were in those days is, is maybe a lot different than we might imagine. Before Abram had a child, his, his most senior servant would have been his heir. So all of the riches of Abram would have gone to his most senior servant. So in a way, they're kind of like family. And it's quite possible that at this point in the scriptural record, the retinue that comes along with Abram could well be in the hundreds of people maybe even as many as a thousand people, plus all of the animals that come along with This is a big group. And Abram's responsible for them. They need to eat. They need to drink, the people and the animals. And what's he going to do now? Now, we should not think that Abram and the other saints in the Old Testament had daily briefings with God, that they would get up in the morning and God would appear to them and say, well, this is what you're going to do today. And they would say, Lord, I just have a question about this. Should I do this or that? And the Lord would say, well, that one, that's the option you should choose. That's not the way it worked. The Bible gives the record of the times that God appears, and it seems that he appears a lot, but the number of times that he appears and gives direct revelation to the patriarchs is not that many. It's not a daily occurrence. We have far more access to God and to his will because we have the, the word of God and the scriptures. Abram didn't have that. We have the accumulated wisdom of uh, thousands of years of godly people studying the scriptures and helping us to understand them. Abram didn't have that. So it's not immediately apparent from our text that God gave direct revelation to Abram how to deal with this problem. Later on, Isaac will be in a similar situation where he has to leave the land because of famine. And in that case, God specifically reveals to Isaac what to do. He says, don't go to Egypt. That's in Genesis chapter 26. Don't go to Egypt. Stay here in this area. So he goes to Jerah. He goes to the land of the Philistines, which is still in the general area. But Abraham doesn't have that kind of revelation. And so, in order not to die... Abram has to leave the promised land. There's not enough blessing. Now, note what, he, note what he doesn't do. He doesn't go back to Haran. He doesn't say, well, you know, this is a waste of time. God told me to go to this land. He says, I'm going to inherit it. My, my descendants, which I don't have yet, I'm going to inherit this land, but I don't have descendants. The land is no good. There's not enough water. I can't live here. I'm quitting while I'm ahead, I'm going to go back to Haran. That's, life was good there. He doesn't do that. He goes to Egypt. And that in itself, that choice already shows a heart of faith. He's not backtracking. He's not giving up. He's just facing the fact that for a short time, he is obliged to leave the promised land. So he goes to the nearest place where he can find sufficient water and food. It's an act of faith. 
Now, this is something which happens more often in the history of redemption. There's a certain dynamic which repeats in the story of God's people throughout the ages that in order to not die in the promised land, you need to take refuge in Egypt, as dangerous as that might be. Egypt is Mitzrayim, that's the, the Hebrew name, that's uh, one of the sons of Ham, a brother of Canaan, the cursed one. And Mitzrayim, the, the Egyptians, are not necessarily friendly to the children of God, to the children of the promise, to the holy line of the woman. But that's how God's providence works. Sometimes he directs us to take refuge in the most unexpected places. And so the children of Ham will help keep alive the children of the promise. It's important for us to realize that. It happens in our lives as well. God sometimes uses unexpected people and unexpected situations to provide for and to protect his children. It's happened with Abram. It happened with Jacob. You remember Jacob and, and Israel went to Egypt. They got stuck there uh, for hundreds of years. And then they went out back to the promised land. And it happened with our Lord Jesus Christ when he was a baby. Our Lord Jesus Christ, in order to not die, in the case of our Lord Jesus Christ, it wasn't famine. It was the sword. It was Herod trying to kill him. So he, with his parents, went to Egypt and found refuge there until it was safe to go back to the promised land. So this is something which happens and is kind of a foreshadowing of future events in redemptive history. And so Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn, says the scripture in verse 10. Sojourn means to stay, to live, but not belong. So you kind of settle down, but like an immigrant. You're not really one of them. There's a lot of teaching in the scripture about sojourning and sojourners. In the law, which Moses will get from the Lord and pass on to the people, the law says, said to the people of Israel, they had to treat refugees and immigrants, sojourners, they had to treat them as natives, as citizens born in the country. They had to love them, they had to protect their rights. And the reason God gives for that attitude towards immigrants and refugees he says, well, you guys, you guys were sojourners and strangers in Egypt. And he's referring, at that time, uh, he's referring back to the time of slavery in Egypt. And so it's quite appropriate that today in the offertory, later on the service, we're giving offerings for the CRWRF Refugee and Inter Internally Displaced Persons Fund. This is something which throughout all the millennia has always characterized God's people that we welcome the stranger, that we welcome the immigrant, that we welcome the refugee, that we love them, that we help them, that we protect them. And if you read in the law, you often see that the Lord places sojourner together with other classes of people that are vulnerable and open to exploitation. The sojourner is mentioned together with the fatherless and with the widow. These are vulnerable classes and they ought to receive special care, love, and protection. That's God's way, and that's the way of God's people. And so he's going to go down there, probably to stay for quite a while, to sojourn, but not to belong, not to become one of them. But there's a problem, and the problem comes in verse 11. He's about to enter Egypt, and he says, I've got a problem, love. You are too beautiful. You're a beautiful woman. Now, isn't that something which every wife would love to hear from her husband, right? I've got a problem. 
darling, you're far too beautiful. But the beauty here is a problem because it may mean that Abram could die. That's how dangerous the beauty of Sarai is. Now, why is it dangerous for Abram to have a, a beautiful wife? Well, we first have to kind of question how is it possible that he's describing his wife as beautiful? She's probably around 70 years old at this point, or in her 70s. So how is it that he's describing her, her, her appearance, the emphasis here is on the appearance, as beautiful? Well, some of the things we can take into account here are the fact that we are closer to Eden than we are now in this text. So the vitality of Eden and eternal life is still ebbing. You remember that after man is expelled from paradise, the ages are very, very high, and they start going down slowly, and slowly they get shorter and shorter. So There's still a certain vitality of Eden that's, that's there. But we also have to understand that wisdom, also even wisdom and appearance, or, or beauty and appearance, is not to be understood in the, the way that we would understand beauty in our modern age. Beauty in our age, in our culture, is often connected with sexuality and with sexual and sensuous appearance. And if you make the mistake of watching too much TV, you'll see that that's, or on the internet, social media, that's the only thing that our culture seems to just focus on, sexuality. But that's not the way that people in ancient times would have right away looked at Abram's wife. There was a lot more. There was lust back then too, of course. But there was a lot more to the understanding of beauty. Sarai is a woman of wisdom. She is a woman of dignity. And yes, also a woman with a certain physical uh, attractiveness. She has had no children uh, and so there's been a preservation of her physical form, uh, and therefore she is seen as attractive and beautiful. Sarai means my princess. That's the meaning of her name. Abram is kind of like a, a, a great prince. We have to understand that. He's got a lot of people. He's got a lot of uh, riches, a lot of livestock. He's In a few chapters' time, he's going to go head-to-head -head with a bunch of local kings, and he's going to He's going to destroy their armies. He's got his own personal army. So Abram is, is a, an important and, and a man of dignity. And so his wife reflects that as well. And so it's desirable to Pharaoh to take her to increase his prestige. That was done often in the ancient world, that kings would collect wives, uh, often for political alliances or just for prestige. The more beautiful, wise, and discerning Women that he had as his wives, the greater he was. So Abram's worried that they will kill him. Why would he be worried about that? Well, as surprising as it may sound, the ancient world of this time, even though it was given over to unbelief, still had some pretty strong reservations about adultery. The law code of Hammurabi, which comes a few centuries after this text, uh, adulterers must be drowned, the man and the woman. There's the death penalty for adultery. And you see 
uh, in the, the, the number of narratives that happen where one of the patriarchs pretends his wife is his sister, you see a great concern, first of all, in Egypt here, the Pharaoh, later on by Abimelech and Jera, you see a great concern not to fall into the sin of adultery. There's a great fear of divine retribution. And so they wouldn't take his wife if he was alive. They would kill him. Well, why is Abram afraid when he goes into Egypt, but he wasn't afraid back in Canaan? And the answer to that is that in Canaan, we have small city-states, and the kings are kind of like local warlords. Abram, with his three, three friends, is able to defeat four kings and their armies. These are local warlords, their towns, their cities probably would have numbered in the thousands of inhabitants. But Abram's not in Canaan right now. He's going into Egypt. And at this time in history, Egypt is a very advanced civilization. The population is probably at least a million, if not more. And it's even though Egyptian chronology and history is notoriously difficult to pin down for a whole bunch of reasons, it's quite likely that when Abram comes to Egypt, he's coming maybe within a century of the Great Pyramid having been built, or perhaps at the time that it is being built. So Egypt is a powerful civilization. It's a populous civilization, and the pharaoh is not just some local warlord like Abram had to deal with in Canaan. So there's a lot more danger here. And so he says, you know, tell them you're my sister so that it may go well with me for your sake. And we think of the latest story of Laban, right? You remember Laban and Rebekah? And when uh, the servant uh, came to, to, to get Rebekah, then Laban was delighted as her brother to negotiate and he got gifts, he got gold and he, and he held things up as long as he could to get as much as he could get out of it and perhaps Abram's thinking of doing something similar he's thinking well if people want to marry my sister they're going to have to talk to me they're going to have to negotiate and I'll just drag it on and drag it on and drag it on and see if I can avoid problems that way. It doesn't work because the servants of Pharaoh see that she is very beautiful they praise her to Pharaoh and she's taken into Pharaoh's house. Abram doesn't have a lot to say about that. Now, the scripture doesn't record here that there was any consummation of the marriage, that there was any physical intimacy between Pharaoh and Sarai. And therefore, we can conclude that it most likely didn't happen. The Bible is very honest. When hard things, painful things, embarrassing things happen, embarrassing truths, the Bible just says them. The Bible doesn't hide that. It's very different than other ancient literature because it's the very word of God. It's truth. It's historical truth. Pharaoh wouldn't need a 70-year-old wife for sexual intimacy. You think of Solomon later on. Solomon had 700 wives and 300 concubines. The wives were usually for treaties, for alliances, for glory, and the concubines were for sexual intimacy. The wives often would live in separate quarters and have their own lives and would hardly see the husband necessarily. And if we think a little bit later in Genesis 20, when Abram's in a similar situation, this time with Abimelech, God says to Abimelech, I didn't let you touch her because this man is a prophet. And we can assume that the same is happening here, that there's a protection of Sarai's dignity and honor. 
And so verse 16, good things start happening for Abram. For her sake, he dealt well with him. So there are great riches, there are flocks and and herds and people that Abram accumulates. He already was rich, he's getting richer. Now, did Abram do the right thing with this kind of half-truth? Because we know from later scripture that Sarai actually is his half-sister, so technically he wasn't lying. Did he do the right thing? It's hard to say. The, the, the text doesn't register, doesn't record any uh, admonishment, uh, admonition sorry, of God upon Abram for what he has done or what he said. We just see actually God blessing Abram through the situation. We don't see disapproval from God. If anybody gets punished, it's Pharaoh. He gets punished. There are great plagues afflicted upon Pharaoh and his house, verse 17. And the word plague means blows or strikings, where God is just powerfully pummeling Egypt, Pharaoh's house, with pain and affliction and destruction. It's the same word that later on we meet in Exodus to describe the the plagues uh, that God put on, on Egypt in the time of the Exodus. And these plagues could include skin diseases, They could include barrenness, that the the wives of Pharaoh could not have children. Why is God doing this? Well, the prophet Zechariah tells us. In the prophet Zechariah, later on in the scripture, God says, For he who touches you touches the apple of my eye. There is no greater love that God has than the love that he has in Christ for his people. There is no possession more precious than the church of the living God. And basically, what God's saying is this. You lay your hand on my beloved, I will lay my hands on you. You touch her, I'll touch you. And the word touch in the sense of strike or punish. And so we don't see Abram being punished, we see Pharaoh being punished in this, in this narrative. And then we, we come to verse 18. Pharaoh calls Abram, he's figured this out, Somehow. And it's interesting how he speaks to Abram. He says, what is this, literally, what is this that you have done? What is this that you have done to me? It's actually exactly the same words which God speaks in the Garden of Eden to Eve. What is this that you have done? There's a lot of disappointment. There's a sense of betrayal. And our text here has a lot of words and ideas and concepts which kind of echo the garden scene. Sarai is attractive, desirable to take, just like the fruit was to Eve. Pharaoh takes, and of course in this scene, who is the deceiver? It's Abram, our father of the faith. And then Pharaoh echoes those words of God to Eve, what is this that you have done? And then they are, they are expelled. The man and the woman are expelled. They're sent away. So echoes of the garden scene, although in a very different configuration. And then look at Pharaoh's distress. Look at how, how he's talking to Abram. What is this you've done to me? Why didn't you tell me she was your wife? Why did you say she's my sister so that I took her for my wife? Now, then here is your wife. Take her and go. So he's very abrupt. He's upset. 
because he could have fallen under the curse, the divine curse, for having uh, relations, intimate relations with a woman who is the wife of another. And he's afraid of what could have happened. What does Abram say? Did you see that in the text? Abram says nothing. He doesn't say a word. It's kind of quiet. It's all a little awkward, isn't it? The whole situation. What do you say to a man that's getting upset with you because you lied about your wife being your sister and put that man in danger of great sin? So did Abram do the right thing with this half-truth? You know, there are situations where we have to make decisions about what the right thing is. And even us, we have the whole Bible, we have far more revelation. Sometimes it's hard, isn't it, to know what the right thing is. It's not always obvious. We know that Abram had a duty to stay alive. Because if he died, then Christ wouldn't be born. And we would all go to hell forever. So he had to stay alive. He was the, in the line of the promise. And, and once, as often in the Old Testament, that plan of redemption leading to the Messiah hangs by a thread. So he's got this massive responsibility. He's got to stay alive until the descendant, the holy descendant, is born. And what we need to remember as we read here about Abram and also the other patriarchs, we have to remember that God's people, God's church, is a child in the Old Testament. We can't take the maturity that we have in Christ as New Testament church and impose that on the Old Testament and expect them to know the things we know and to figure out the things that we might be able to figure out today in a different way. With a child, you expect from the child in accordance with their age and progress in maturity. Galatians tells us that the law was a tutor, a pedagogue to bring us to Christ. That's a child in that time was under a pedagogue that would uh, teach them maturity until they finally came of age. And that's how God describes his people. If you look at Hosea chapter 11, the first few verses speaks about God and the way he talks about his people, he says, I called my son from Egypt. I taught Ephraim how to walk. So he, he describes his people as a little baby that he, he taught to take its first steps. So there's an immaturity here. There is growth. There are lots of things that Abram does. For instance, he has a number of different wives, as the, later on the other patriarchs as well. These are things that are part of the immaturity of the church. And God slowly teaches his church to grow in these questions. So it's good to be reluctant to judge Abram for his choices here. We leave that with God. The text doesn't emphasize him as being in sin here, so we'll leave it at that. And so 13 verse 1, Abram went up. He, his wife, all he had and lot with him. And by now, with all the extra animals and with all the extra people, it's an even bigger group leaving than came. It's quite possible, judging by the numbers we read later on, that he has an army of 318 trained men. It's quite possible that by now, Abram alone has about 2,000 people in his retinue. Lot has his own numbers and his own wealth, so that's a big group leaving Egypt. Very rich, says the scripture. In verse 2, very rich in livestock and silver and in gold. So rather than reading about a reprimand of God, we read about blessing of God. 
great blessing being poured out on Abram through this setback. So that's what God is doing here. He's using this setback, the famine. He's using the painful and rather awkward events in Egypt. And through all of this, he equips Abram. He prepares him to go back to the promised land, now stronger with more resources and ready to face other threats to the kingdom of God, to the people of God. In just a few chapters, he'll be fighting against four local kings with his own personal army, 318 trained men. So the stay in Egypt helped prepare him for that future battle and give him the resources for it. And so what's happening here in this narrative? Well, there was affliction, there was famine, there was severe famine, He was forced to leave the promised land. He was forced to go to a place where there was danger, anxiety, threats, and and not being sure exactly how to stay alive and survive through this and do the right thing. Maybe he made mistakes. But whatever happened, God brings Abram through. That's the picture, the big picture. God keeps the holy line from Eve to the Messiah. He protects that holy line. And God blesses Abram richly, not yet with land, not yet with descendants, but with many resources. And so Abram comes out of there with new understanding and experience of faith. He has learned even more deeply that God is good, that God is merciful, that God is slow to anger, that God is compassionate, that God gathers and defends and protects his church. That's what he's learned through all of this. And so he journeys, verse 3, as far as Bethel. Bethel isn't called Bethel yet in this, at this point in history. Later on, Jacob will call it Bethel, the gate of God. But that's the place where he built the altar. And that's where he goes again. That point of contact between earth and heaven. And there he calls on the name of the Lord. That's what this whole situation leads to. All of the ups and downs and challenges and mistakes and sins and problems and afflictions, it all ends up with Abram falling flat in his face and worshiping the name, worshiping the Lord. We don't read of him building an altar in Egypt. Wherever he goes in the promised land, he builds an altar. But we don't read of him building an altar in Egypt. That's not the promised land. That's not the place where God has chosen to put his name. That's not the place where God has chosen to gather his people into his presence. Now, we read 1 Chronicles 16. David celebrates the ark coming into Jerusalem. He he sang that song and he mentions this text of of today. He mentions that they were traveling from nation to nation and he rebuked kings because of them saying, touch not my anointed, do my prophets no harm. And so our text is part of that long history of God working to undo the fall, to to remake the world which we plunged into darkness, to remake it into a home for us to live with him in, in glory. And part of that story are the altars of the patriarchs and the tabernacle of the people of Israel and the temple of Solomon. And finally, after Acts chapter two, the church of God, which is the temple of God in this world. And it ends up in glory where the, the heavens and the earth are new and the entire earth 
is a temple, a holy of holies, in which we live in God's presence. And so this little story here is part of that great big plan of God. There's a lot more going on here than Abram not having enough food. Or Abram facing a tough ethical decision-making process. So what do we learn from the text? Well, we learn that God's plan cannot be frustrated. The promised Messiah has been promised and he will come. It will happen. God's plan of redemption will move forward, even though in the moment, in the situation, it seems like it's going backwards. Even though it seems to be frustrated or, or in danger, God's plan of redemption will stand. His covenant promises will stand. He is faithful to his promises. Nothing can derail it. And that's true, not just for Abram and for our history as the church, but it's true for our lives as well. We live in the promised land, don't we? God has promised us that we will inherit the earth. That's not some shadowy, intangible spirit world up there in heaven. That's this earth that we're walking on and living in right now. This world is our inheritance. The Bible says that we will rule with Christ over this whole created universe. Kings and queens, and yes, children, you are right now a prince and a princess of the kingdom of God. You will judge the angels as sons and daughters of the living God. So we live in the promised land, but just like Abram was in the promised land, but he didn't, he, he didn't really own much of it. He was waiting for it to come yet. So we are also in that dynamic of already, not yet. We are here, but we don't belong. We're sojourning. We're waiting for the city with foundations whose builder and architect is God. And while we wait... Just like Abraham, we believe and we worship and we call upon the name of the Lord. Abram goes through the land of promise building altars. We, as God's children, as God's church, as Christians, we spread throughout the world. We don't have to build an altar because wherever we are, there is the temple of the living God. Wherever there is a gathered church, there is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Wherever there is a Christian walking, playing, living, there is a temple of the living God. And that's the way our lives are right now as we await the consummation of all things. Now sometimes, the new heavens and the new earth, the joyful life, the abundant life that Christ promises us, sometimes it seems even further away today than it was yesterday. Sometimes there are sufferings and there are setbacks and there's affliction. And sometimes heaven seems very, very distant and very, very far away. And sometimes, frankly, quite hard to believe that it's ever going to happen. And sometimes sufferings and setbacks are so difficult, so hard, that we don't know how to deal with them. And sometimes we as God's people, we're not quite sure how to navigate and which ethical decisions we have to make. And we may even disagree because it's not clear to us. But one thing we do know, God will use these setbacks. God is sovereign 
even over our affliction, our suffering, even over our feeble attempts and our embarrassing mistakes, God is faithful. God will bless us in the affliction, through the affliction. That's the guarantee. And that's the glory of the gospel, brothers and sisters. It doesn't depend on us doing all the right things and making all the right moves. Because if it depended on that, we wouldn't have a chance. God is unfailingly good. And so on this Thanksgiving weekend, we can look back. And we can look around. And God calls us, brother and sister, not to drown in the what-ifs and the the if-onlys. Did I see Did I do, did I think the right thing? Uh, If only I had reacted differently to that challenge or to that suffering or to that affliction. If only, what if? God calls us away from that. Child of God, your greatest sufferings, your greatest setbacks, your worst mistakes and your gravest doubts, you have to put in the perspective of eternity. God's work in your life, God's work through your life, continues and nothing can derail, nothing can stop his plan. He, he loves, he protects, he provides, he rescues, he forgives, he restores, he pours out blessing upon blessing upon blessing. No matter how much we suffer, no matter how much we mess up, that's what he does. He blesses. And so when things are good, we give thanks. And when things are hard, we give thanks. Because life with God is good. Even when it's confusing, even when it's challenging, even when we don't know what to do, even when it hurts, life with God is always good. Because God is at work. The kingdom is advancing. He is preparing us for glory. And every day we are closer to the new heavens and the new earth when we will take possession of our inheritance and live forever in the presence of our Father. So let's give thanks and worship. Amen.